Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Lord Jesus, as we open your word, we ask that the seed sown in weakness would be raised up in power where we doubt and we are weak. By the might of your Holy Spirit, grant us faith that we might abide in you as your word abides in us. Amen. We're going to open this morning to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and I just want to ask and hopefully answer two questions. The first question is, what is life? What, what is it and what's it for? And the second question is, what is eternal life? What's it all about and how does it work and what it's for? And we'll see, I think, the answers to both of these questions in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. We'll bounce around a couple other verses before we get there. But let's begin with a, a thought experiment. So put yourself in here and you've got to choose between one of these two options. This thought experiment is not new. It, did, it wasn't invented this year. It's actually, uh, it, it goes, it wasn't invented in this century. It goes back and back and back in the history of philosophy. I think the first time that I found it coming up is between the Epicureans and the Stoics. It goes way, way back. And you have to place yourself in one of these two situations. First, you can choose to live in a room and never exit that room. It's a very comfortable room. It's climate controlled. You can have brought in anything you want to drink, anything you want to eat. Uh, entertainment can come into the room if you want to watch this or, or see that. Different forms of entertainment can be provided in the room and it's very safe and very comfortable, but you can never exit the room. And if you stay in that room and live your life in that room, your life will be 10 years longer than it would have been if you went out of the room. Just stay in it. The second choice in this thought experiment is you have to live out in the wild. You have to live out in the world. It's not climate controlled. You can't always get uh, what you want it's risky. Maybe you won't find what you want. Maybe you'll get your heart broken, but maybe you'll find love and joy and all the rest of it in the world. But if you live out in the world with all of its adventures and ups and downs, your life will have 10 fewer years in it than if you stayed in the room. So which one do you choose? We all know the choice that we're supposed to make. I think instinctively, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe the Bible, I think we all have a little, like this instinctive feeling that we know we're supposed to choose life out in the wild. We know that life's not meant to be lived in, inside of a safe antiseptic box. We all know the proper answer is life in the wild. Like I said, even if you don't believe the Bible, I think you kind of lean that way. I think every human being does because we all sort of know that life is something more than uh, accumulating a number of heartbeats. We all know that life is about getting a bigger and better heart. I think we all know 
the correct answer, but sometimes the way we live our lives and our fears, we maybe put the lie to what we think the answer should be based on our behaviors sometimes. We all know instinctively that there are values that are bigger than comfort and security and longevity and safety. We all know that there are bigger values in life than merely prolonging life. The Bible, the Bible certainly tells us that there are more important things than just accumulating a greater number of heartbeats on this little planet. The Bible's insistent upon that. In fact, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, you find women and men who are, their stories are told and they, they chose to, so to speak, make their life on this planet shorter because of their zeal for God, their love for God, their passion for God's glory. And every one of those examples is not shown to us in the Bible as a, as a, a negative foil that we're not supposed to be like. Every one of those examples is held up to us in Holy Scripture as a model that we're supposed to emulate. The Bible's very clear that the purpose of life is the glory of God, the love of God. And Jesus goes so far as to say that loving your neighbor is more important than merely keeping yourself alive for longer on this planet. We all know that there are values of love and purpose and glory that are more valuable to us than merely accumulating a few more months or a few more years. What is life? And what is its purpose? And what is it for? We're going to get to John 17. Let me just read to you a couple of verses before we get there. These all, each one of these verses answers the question, what is life? First verse I'll read to you is John 5, verse 24. Jesus says, this is life. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed out of death and into life. That's John 5, 24. Jesus says, whoever believes in me does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Now, that's an amazing statement. It's the upside down, stand on your head way of thinking about life from the way we think about it. We all think we need to, keep ourselves safe and healthy so that we don't pass out of life and into death. That's the way we think about it. This year, more than any other, that the world just tries to crush us into thinking that way. And yet Jesus says in John 5, 24, the one who believes in me has passed out of death and into life. Meaning that Jesus' definition of life is life is something that you pass into out of this little existence on this planet. Amazing. 1 John 5.12, similar statement from Jesus' apostle John. 1 John 5.12, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. 1 John 5.12, what is life? Apparently, life is something that you have if and only if you have the Son of God. And if you have 
life as in a beating heart, but you don't have the Son of God, you have something that everyone in this world calls life, but Jesus doesn't call it life. Whoever has the Son has life, but the one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So if you have a beating heart and you have oxygenated blood cells and you have vaccinated safety from disease and you have brain activity, hard to register for some of you, but maybe let's just say you do, you have all of those things, but you don't have the Son of God. You don't have life. You have something that everyone calls life, but it's not life. Another definition of life that I can't resist, even though it's a little bit of a sidestep from where we're headed, is 1 Thessalonians 3.8. I just, this is an amazing little verse. You don't have to turn there. In, six and, in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, it's like if I was gone and I wrote back or sent a message back to the church, and Paul says basically, um, I've been worried about you. I've been losing a little bit of sleep about you because I'm not sure that you're staying strong and, I, and I'm not sure how you're doing. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, when he hears that they're standing strong in Christ, he says, for now, I really live because you are standing strong in the Lord Jesus. What a thing to say. This guy loves people so much that he says, now I, this is, this is what I really call life. This is life worth celebrating is this. If I know that my friends are following Jesus with a strong faith. What a love for people. This is to, this is to make and train disciples who make and train disciples is not, is not something that I do. It's something that this is my, this is I really live if I see that happen. That much passion for people. That's real life. And I think you all know Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I have, we, we prayed for many of our unbelieving friends and family members last week. We're still praying for them and trying to reach them this week. Let's keep that up. I've got unbelieving friends, family members, you do too, that would say, for me to live is and then how would they put that in? For me to live is to make more dollars. For me to live is to win whatever game I'm playing in life. For me to live is this and that and the other thing. The Bible says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Bible does not indicate that for me to live is to accumulate more health and more heartbeats. It says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is that the case? Because to live is Christ. For me to live is to know Christ, to believe in Christ, to enjoy Christ. We, for me to live is Christ, but in this life, all we, all we have to do is by, like, by, by, by believing, by faith, we take a little bit of bread, we take a little cup, and we believe that Jesus is caring for us, and we believe that Jesus is loving us. But the reason it says to die is gain is because to live is Christ, to die is gain, because when I die, then it's not going to be a little cup and a little piece of bread. When I die, Jesus' nail-pierced hands will take the cup of wine on the table and place it in my hands. 
By sight, I'll be with him. Not by faith any longer. This is why to die is gain. It is good to remember Jesus, to worship Jesus together, but it is far better to be in his presence. To die is gain. What is life? And what is eternal life? I think we see both questions answered in John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, Jesus answers the question, what is life? And he answers the question, what is eternal life? By praying for himself, Father, glorify your son. And by praying for us, Father, those whom you've given me, I've now given them eternal life that they may know you and me. In John chapter 17, verses one through five, Jesus answers the question, what is life and what is eternal life? By by getting enraptured, as it were, in his relationship with his father and in his relationship with us. And these fold in on each other. His relationship with his father and his relationship with us fold in on each other. God the Father's relationship with God the Son as they share glory. And then our relationship with God, this is our eternal life, that we get in on that glory. And it, all, it kind of folds in to itself. In other words, verse 1 is about something that happens like within the life of the triune God. He says, Father... The hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And then even in verse 5, it's something that happens within the life of the Trinity because it's something that was happening before the world was ever created. There was no you and me and angels here. He says in verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is about a kind of life and a kind of glory that, that, that God shares with himself, as it were. But then, verses 2 and 3 and 4 are about something that happens sort of between that triune God and us. Because Jesus says, uh, I've given eternal life to all whom you've given me, and this is their eternal life that they'll experience and know you, and they'll experience and know me. So these things fold in on each other, the life and the glory that God shares with himself, and the life and the glory that he gives to us in redemption. Our lives are intertwined with his through the work of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying here, maybe in, in three sentences, Jesus' life, mission, is about the glory of God. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That's the first. Jesus' life, mission, is about the glory of God. The second is that Jesus' reward for fulfilling that mission is returning to that glory. 
take me back to be in that glory with you that I had before the world ever existed. Glorify the Son. Jesus' life mission is about the glory of God. Jesus' reward for his mission is returning to the glory of God. But then it folds in on us because like the third summative sentence would be our eternal life is sharing in that glory because Jesus successfully fulfilled his mission. And when he receives the reward for fulfilling his mission, he brings us up into that reward so that we experience that joy. Each one of them folds into the others. Both of our questions are answered. What is life and what is eternal life? Because Jesus enjoys his reward. He gives us eternal life so that the glory that he receives as his reward, we're taken up into that glory. Life and eternal life and salvation are about something much bigger than just just having our sins forgiven, as big as that is. I mean, we took the cup and the bread and we shudder at the cost that was paid for the forgiveness of our sins. I don't in any way mean to minimize that. It's a big deal to have your sin forgiven, especially for people like you who sin so much. It's a big deal to have your sin forgiven. But the eternal life is not just having your sin forgiven. It's actually something more than that. Just like in verse 1, Jesus says, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In other words, Father, forgive us of our sins. Jesus, let your blood cleanse us from our sins. Let our sins be forgiven so that something else can happen. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is about something even more than than just having your sins forgiven. Eternal life is about something more than just living forever. You, you know, you're familiar with the old fable about the fountain of youth. Some explorer goes and finds the fountain of youth, and if, and if he drinks from it, then he can live forever. He's immortal. There's actually an old fable that's maybe almost as old as the fable of the fountain of youth, and it's, a, it's the tale of the adventurer who found the fountain of youth, and he drank from it. And after... 300, 800, 1,200 years, he wants to be done living. Accumulating heartbeats on this planet is not what it's all about. And this fable is about his quest to find the, you know, the mirror image of some sort of fountain of mortality so that he can finally die. There's, there's nothing automatically desirable in ongoing existence the Bible is very clear. We, we say it with tears in our eyes and we should and we shudder to say it, but the Bible is very clear that when Jesus appears, every eye will see him. But for many eyes, this will not be the entrance into paradise. This will mean that they go on in a lake of fire, experiencing condemnation and the just wrath of God. And that continues eternally. Eternal life, it has to be about something more than duration or, or quantity. What's the good of a large quantity of something that you don't want? I mean, if you're going to get my Christmas present at Costco or Sam's Club, that kind of size bulk 
and you get me a, a Costco-sized carton of, of pickles, I am going to throw that carton back in your face. I, I hate pickles. Every sane person hates pickles. They're disgusting. But if you get that, I heard that amen. But if you get that, you, you know, you get that, you get me a carton of spicy nacho cheese Doritos or, or cinnamon rolls, then we can be friends. There's, there's certain things that a bigger quantity of them is not, is not going to fix anything. What is eternal life? What is the purpose of life? It's not just that, that our heart will go on beating on and on and on and on. It's about a different kind of and quality of life. This is what I mean when I say salvation is more than forgiveness. Not, not to minimize the price that was paid for our forgiveness, but forgiveness has to happen so that something else can happen. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Even Jesus fulfilling his hour was so that something could happen. Our forgiveness is so that something can happen. This, this is eternal life, that they may experientially know you that they may, without a shadow of a doubt, know you in the, in the consummation of that relationship. Forgiveness is utterly and completely necessary, but it is not the total. It's necessary to get us to that, that we might know and experience the glory of God. The word glory or it's cognate glorify, is I think five times in verses one through five, twice in verse one, uh, once in verse four, and then twice again in verse five. What does the word glory mean? In the Old Testament, the word glory, the word kabod, means, it means weight. They would, of course, in the marketplace, you would measure out, you'd still measure out. They're gonna charge you for the coffee beans based on the, the weight of it. And even their money, the shekels that they used were, it wasn't just a different number on them, it was actually the weight of the shekel that, that determined its value. And the glory of God is sort of the, the weight of the reality of the value of God. This is why in Isaiah, and then also a couple times in the Psalms, it says, it says that the, the glory of the Lord fills the earth He's, he, it's as if the poet is measuring and weighing the glory of God. And he says, the glory of God fills the earth. But the, the prophet or the poet's point is not the measure of God's glory is the, is the measures of the known universe. What he's saying is the glory of God fills the universe and it spills over over that. But I, I don't know how to talk about something that's not universe. So I, this, is, this is the biggest measurement that I can take. But I know that it spills over that. That's the glory of God. The Greek word for glory is the word um, doxa, D-O-X-A in English alphabet. It's, it still is in our word like paradox. There's a meaning of doxa that's like to appear or to seem. And so if something's a paradox, it appears or seems like it, like it doesn't fit. Or if something is orthodox, it is straight and it fits exactly where it should. We, get it, we, we use this word in our word doxology. From appear or seem, it also has, it, it also is elevated in meaning to the, the highest appearance or the, the highest opinion. And God is that one whose reality is, the, the reality of his appearance is, is, is higher and more than anything, anything else. What is the glory of God? 
The glory of God is the most beautiful beauty in the universe. The glory of God is the most desirable desire in the universe. The glory of God is the truest truth in the universe. The glory of God is the most joyous joy in the universe. Anselm, in his ancient book about proving the existence of God, he says something like this. God is that being whose non-isness is inconceivable. God is that one that you may think you can think about him not existing, but you actually can't because every thought in the universe is dependent upon him existing. Like, you, it, when you just start to peel at that, then you begin to worship the reality that is God. The glory of God is, and Jesus says, when, when you come to know me, you pass out of death and into life and you experience the glory of God. What, what, would, it, what would it be like if I was just finally able to back to those friends and family members who don't know Jesus yet that I want to reach like before this year is out and I want to see you reach your family and friends with the good news of Jesus before this year is out. For every one of them, I think what they think is, yeah, if I entered into Christianity, I would be stepping out of joy and happiness and into something that's confining and constricting and not as good. And if we, could, if we could just, we can't, but the Holy Spirit can, get into that mind and into that heart and show them when, when, when you step out of what you're currently calling life and you enter into the glory of God and a saving relationship with Jesus, you're stepping out of a false, dreamlike joy that had no reality to it, and you're landing in the substance that is the love that flung the stars into space. The glory of God is the reality that makes the universe a UNI-verse. It is the one reality on which everything else orbits. And church, this is eternal life. That Jesus would glorify God by bringing us into that life. This is our life. Far be it from the church to define life the way this world defines life with their closed down horizon and their merely biological view of life. It is far more than that. And so church, my, my simple and yet very direct exhortation to you is that you would, would, would walk in this kind of life. A, a Christian woman, a Christian man is not identified by everything goes great in their life. But the Christian woman or the Christian man is identified by this. They have an ongoing hope and joy and love that is no longer dependent upon all of the circumstances of this life. Walk in this kind of glory and this kind of life and then do everything that you can 
to testify to the reality of this life and to share this good life with those around you. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.